0: Um, Stella and Odin, you guys were amazing. Thank you, Allison, as well. Um, Should have given you guys like the handheld mic and you could just hold it out and drop it when you were done. That would be appropriate. Really not much to add to what's been said. But there's still a a few minutes before mini-meal, so... See if I can do something here. <clears throat> I want to try to shed some light on what we've already heard. I want to see if I can help us further delight. Terrible pun, I know. Couldn't help myself. As noted earlier, the theme for this month of June is the path of delight. There isn't much in the world that's more delightful than seeing young people develop. Think of the milestones of birth. Infants learning to walk, toddlers learning to talk. It's all delightful, right? However, this idea of coming of age is not so clear cut. It's a little more fuzzy than those other milestones yet I want to argue that it is at least as significant. That's why in cultures all around the world, this time of coming of age in the teen years is observed with elaborate rituals and initiation ceremonies, as Allison mentioned. Just to say, some of those rituals are far more painful than speaking in front of the congregation. I'll spare us the details, but uh, yeah, you got out of it. what is so significant about this time in human development? As Allison said, coming of age means that one is ready to do the work of a mature member of the community, to engage in a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And yet, what actually changes in our teenage years to, that makes us ready to be free and responsible? great Swiss psychologist, Jean Piaget, taught that the level of thinking achieved in the early teen years, which he calls formal operations, represents the fourth and final stage of human cognitive development. This doesn't mean that as teenagers we're fully formed, adults, we're not, you're not. But we do have all the main neurological tools of human thinking. And it's this formal operational stage during this stage that we achieve some of the capacities that even if not absolutely unique to humans are particularly well developed in our species. I found slides online for a course in developmental psychology that apparently is taught primarily through Calvin and Hobbes cartoons (laughs) I'll read it for those who can't see it clearly on the slide. You're going to juggle eggs, asks Hobbes. And Calvin replies, it's a metaphor for life, Hobbes. Each egg represents one of life's concerns. And the goal is to give each the appropriate amount of individual attention while simultaneously watching and guiding all the others. Life is about balance and staying quick and alert as everything threatens to spin out of control. After the eggs splatter across the room, Hobbes observes, and sometimes we make a big mess of things. To which Calvin, himself covered in egg yolks, concludes, but the important thing is persistence. I'm not sure how old Calvin is supposed to be, but by our teens, we can understand abstract ideas, like eggs representing life concerns, or concepts like balance and persistence. Further, we gain the ability to shape, manipulate, reform such ideas in our minds, independent of the things we actually see in the world. As David Breeden Spoke about a few weeks ago when he was talking about creativity and creativity expressed in religions and in alternatives to religions. We can create whole worlds in our minds. And equally important, this level of abstract thought gives us the capacity for something called metacognition. It's not a great word, metacognition. Sounds like a, a superpower, right? In the scope of life on this planet, it it is a superpower. Metacognition is the capacity to create a concept of and think about our own thought processes. Yeah, thinking about metacognition is pretty meta, isn't it? (laughs) We heard all kinds of metacognition going on in the credos, didn't we? Stella, you practically defined the term when you talked about Helen Keller and you know, her, her effect on your thinking. And Odin could imagine the minds of people in the future, whether they will remember him, which helped him think about how he wants to live right now. Our early teens, we gain the ability to systematically imagine new worlds. Not only that ability, but we have at least the potential to choose new ways of thinking. New and hopefully better selves. In his powerful secular and democratic socialist treatise, This Life, the contemporary philosopher Martin Haglund reclaims the concept of spirituality. He subtracts any notion of metaphysical speculation and he applies this word to the capacity to conceive and reconceive of ourselves which he calls spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom is different from what he terms as natural freedom. Natural freedom is the ability to move around in the world and make choices. It's a capacity that we share with all animals, all other species, and which itself is deserving of respect and reverence. But Hagelin says... Spiritual freedom requires the ability to ask which imperatives to follow in light of our ends, as well as the ability to call into question, challenge, and transform our ends themselves. As long as we have a self-relation, as long as we lead our lives in any way at all, the question of who we ought to be is alive for us. Since it is at work in all our activities, in engaging the question, what should I do, we're also engaged in the question, who should I be? There's no final answer to that question. No other species we have encountered is capable of transforming its understanding of what it means to be that species. There's no final answer to the question of what it means to be human. In other words, to be human in the fullest capacity is to have to answer that open-ended question, what kind of human will I be? That's spiritual freedom. Now there are ways in which our brains continue to develop into adulthood, there's hope for the rest of us, but in another sense, development slows by our teens and something else takes over. Human cognitive development is a linear process, generally. We know what to expect next. But this process leads to the open-ended capacity for growth and change. We can call this open-ended capacity for change a form of evolution. I'll note here that I'm drawing on the work of Uh, the evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson, who I mentioned in my talk a few weeks ago. And of course here, I'm not talking about genetic evolution. That takes place over long periods of time, many, many generations. With recent innovations like CRISPR, that could change, but I'll leave that for another day. Instead, if we take a more general concept of evolution, any open-ended process that exhibits three characteristics. Variation, selection, retention. It's happening all the time in many different ways. For instance, all learning and behavior can be seen through this lens. In fact, we experienced it moments ago. We heard two amazing young people, you guys, manipulating and reforming, recombining ideas It's variation. We heard them choosing some ideas and questioning or rejecting others. Selection. And they wrote this down on paper and in memory. It's retention. At the same time, we, the audience, heard new ideas or ideas stated in new or challenging ways. Variation. As we listen, we may have absorbed some ideas. And even though we were all quite impressed, some ideas some of us may have disagreed with, that would be selection. If we do hold on to some of of these ideas and share them with others, that's retention. And so the shaping of ideas in our minds affects not only ourselves, but all of those we interact with. And share our ideas and behaviors with. Shared ideas and behaviors. That's culture. It too is evolving. And in our ever more connected world. Culture is not just congregational. Or national. But global. So we see evolution at work in ourselves. And in our culture. All the way up to the global scale. And you guys are a part of that now. like seeing first steps or hearing first words, we have had the delight of hearing an early version of your evolution as individuals and your participation in the evolution of culture. But unlike those earlier milestones, this is not an unqualified delight. Because unlike human development, the evolution of individual humans it's not linear. It's open-ended. We don't know for sure where you will go next. And the evolution of culture certainly is not linear. It too is open-ended. Like Calvin with his eggs, you and we can make a big mess. You will make some messes. Hopefully not too big. Eggs we can clean up, some other things. But human cultures have made some pretty big messes, not least around the very ideas I'm talking about today. Some theorists took the ideas of both genetic and cultural evolution and applied them to a narrative of racial and cultural superiority, which then shaped their subsequent ideas and actions. Sadly, a fair number of humanists and Unitarians were counted among them, Thankfully, most people everywhere, including most humanists and most you use, come to understand the ways; those ways of thinking led to horrific injustices and were scientifically wrong-headed as well. And here is where the wisdom of Calvin is proven right. Again, Calvin and Hobbes, not the other Calvin. <laughs> persistence, but not stubborn persistence in our thinking, persistence in our true superpower, metacognition, the power to rethink the way we think. Like any superpower, metacognition comes with responsibility, the responsibility to always be answerable for and willing to reconsider the ways that we think, to look at the stories we tell ourselves about the world and to always be willing to rethink them, to rewrite those stories in light of our highest values, and even to rethink those values when necessary, as Unitarian Universalists are currently doing with the principles we read earlier. Speaking of rethinking, I cringe a bit to recall Some of the ways of thinking I tried out. See if you can recognize the story behind this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest moment, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, our friendships, sorry, all, friendships all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. It's not a humanist story that we were hearing in there. It's not a liberal Christian story shared by many of our Unitarian Universalist friends. It's a fundamentalist story of a life that leads to inevitable eternal reward or punishment. In truth, I was never quite comfortable with all of that story's implications, but I craved a sense of meaning and urgency that it gave to everyday life, which the quote captures... Needless to say, I rethought that story for myself some time ago. And my latest version of a story for myself relates to the ideas I've been discussing. I'll try to express it, my credo, if you will, using some of the words of C.S. Lewis that I can retain. I'll be repeating much of what you guys said, just using the words of a famous author. So um, you didn't know you could do that, did you? But as you listen, as you and all of you listen, as humans, you can select it and retain it or reform it and reshape it or reject it entirely and keep your story or choose another story altogether. That's your spiritual freedom. So here we go. It is a serious thing to be and to live in a society of mortal and malleable beings who have just one life to live and to know that the cultures we share and contribute to can shape the lives not only of those we meet, but of the whole world and of generations indefinitely into the future. Our lives and the cultures we contribute to can become more pleasant, more just, more stable, more compassionate, more hopeful, or they can become harsher, more unjust, more unforgiving, more hateful, more harmful. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other, the world, the future, in one way or another, in one of these directions. In the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, There are no ordinary human beings. We are all evolving beings. Stella Noden, thank you for your contribution today to each of our evolving selves and to our evolving culture here at First Unitarian Society and in the world. We delight in what you've shared and who you have become and in the open-ended process, you are beginning. So thank you, and give them another hand. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website, at firstunitarian.org.